Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale episode 9 with me Bex and me Ethan. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> knock knock. Who's there? Doctor. Doctor who? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that coming. Well done. Well done. You bested me. You bested me. Good one. Yeah, no, that's true. There's going to be a uh, a new who mm. in new who. Yeah. Again. It's going to be a whole year of speculation. Who's it going to be? <sighs> to be honest, they're getting through them now, aren't they? Yeah. What is it, two, three years? It's kind of, uh, it's getting a bit ridiculous now. They need to calm down. <laughs> um, yeah, so they've announced just this week that Peter Capaldi is leaving. It was kind of rumbling a little bit. Yeah. There was always rumour that it was going to happen. And obviously with Moffat leaving at the end of this series, it would there was always a question of whether Capaldi would stay with it as well. But then it would be nice if there was some continuity. Mm. But yeah, like you say, there's now going to be a few months at least. Probably not the whole year, but a few months of utter shambles. <laughs> whilst everyone speculates on who the new Doctor Who is going to be. Yeah. And then whoever it is, some people will be upset. Some people will be really happy. <laughs> but most people will be upset. <laughs> yeah. It's... It's almost as bad as the who's going to be the new James Bond speculation, which feels like it has been going on for years and will carry on for years. But the thing about the James Bond thing, though, is that often it happens when the person who's playing Bond just wants to get more money out of them. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in Doctor Who, it's like, I'm off. I'm done. Yeah. So, yeah, it will be it will be weird. And there'll be the usual expectation that they'll change the Doctor. Will this be the first you know, non-white Doctor Who, the first female Doctor Who... There's this feeling that maybe now is the time, but then it always feels like that, and they never seem to take that option. Yeah. And also, it's interesting that you're going to have a new showrunner coming in yeah. at the same time as a new Doctor. Yeah. And it could very much come down to whatever he decides he wants the show to be like mm. when he takes over. Yeah. Loads of speculation about is he going to cast someone from Broadchurch? I, I, I don't think so. I think it'll be someone else. He better not. He's, whoever it is, they've got to spend a lot of time filming in Cardiff, and it's not the most regular shooting schedule because they keep messing the show around, switching around. It's on in the springs, on the autumn. They've got years where there's nothing. It's who knows. Do you think that's why they can't hang on to people? I don't know. I mean, Peter Capaldi, he did loads of things before Doctor Who. And maybe he just thinks there's loads of other things I could do as well, you know, rather than doing this forever. Maybe he's going to join the Marvel Universe. <laughs> Another one. Maybe, <laughs> that, maybe he is. That seems to be happening. That seems to be happening. But maybe that's maybe that's the problem though with with people who kind of go off and want to do other things. Like you say, if the schedule is so erratic, maybe they can't plan that much in advance because it mm. depends on when they're actually going to be shooting. And if they're never sure, I mean, the last few years, it's the show has come back in. The spring and the autumn, it's missed a year at some point, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember back when Russell T Davies was running it, back in the David Tennant years, um, it was on like clockwork every year. And then he was doing other stuff as well. Like, you know, he was in the RSC and he and you knew when the, the filming was going to be, when they weren't going to be filming. And you could sort of, if you're an actor and you were planning all your other projects, then you could do that. But maybe it is a problem if you never know when it's going to come back, mm. if it's not a particular time of the year, 
and you're getting other offers to do things because you've from become, the Marvel universe. Yeah, because you've become proper famous yeah. because you you were the Doctor. Then what do you do? Yeah. But even, you know, even if he doesn't do anything else, he can make a very nice living from conventions for the rest of his life. <laughs> Signing pictures of himself holding a guitar. Yeah. That kind of business. Yeah. So I'm sure that we'll return to that issue once in a while mm. in the coming months when things flare up again. Yeah. Um, but it will be it will also be nice to have a change as well. Yeah. In like the whole thing. But it w- it would also be good if at some point they took a complete risk and didn't go for potentially a very well-known uh actor or actress if they yeah. if they really went for a complete change in how they do things with Doctor Who. You know, you never know because all, all, they always speculate they're going to change. Mm. But then you can always see why they've chosen the Doctor they've chosen. And so it'd be nice if they went in a different direction, did something new. But to be honest, the show, you know, its marketing is probably quite important as well. Yeah. And it, it would be nice if they could just keep it a secret until it actually happens. Because mm. presumably the regeneration is going to be Christmas if he says that's his last They could one. film it like the week before. Yeah. Closed set. No one knows who it's going to be. They could just film Peter Cavaldi stumbling around <laughs> and then kind of going, ah! And then they could film somebody re-emerging. Mm. But like you said, the the marketing machine that exists around Doctor Who these days, it means that the hype will have started yeah. long before the episode screened. But surely the biggest hype for a Christmas episode will be if they said, we're revealing the new Doctor in this, and they managed to keep it a secret. Yeah. That'd be really good. That'd be well good. Yeah, but it's not going to happen. In this day and age, those things just will never happen again. Mm. Oh, well. The, the only show that I can think of in recent times where they've managed to not let anything at all leak out is probably the new Twin Peaks series. Mm. It's funny that you brought that up, not me. Yeah. I'm not going to take the bait this time. <laughs> we're going to move swiftly on. Mm. What are we moving on to? <laughs> to be honest, Dune! <laughs> See the link there? No, uh, so they've also announced that uh, Dune is going to be remade again. 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 Uh. Although it's from the dude who made Arrival, mm. you know, and he's just done Blade Runner, the new Blade Runner movie, which is out later this year. So he's clearly the chosen one for a while. <laughs> but I don't know, Dune, I think, is a bit of a cursed property, mm. you know, and unless it has Sting in it, like the original version of the movie, you know, I'm not sure. There, there, are, there are some books that just will never really translate well yeah. into films, just the way it is. Yeah. I mean, there is there is a very good... Well, there's a fantastic Dune thing that that can be made. Mm. Whether it's a film, I don't know. Although, I remember a few years ago, there was a terrible TV version. Mm. It was like a miniseries, and that was yeah. just awful. So you kind of want... It needs a bit of scope to kind of breathe as a story. There's a lot of new stuff. It's kind of like Sandman. That will never work, I think, as a single movie. It has to be a miniseries, but an expensive one, which, which takes a lot of time to develop the plot and things like that. Mm. But, you know, maybe they're going to just bang out a uh, a three-hour movie, you know, version of Dune. Who knows? Mm. And something that they will inevitably bang out a three-hour version of, but who knows who will be directing it now, is the new Batman film. <gasps> oh, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? When is, it, when is it actually important that the BBC News has, like, a headline, which is Ben Affleck will not be directing Batman? <laughs> That's not news. Because... <laughs> We don't need we don't need any more information until they've figured out what they're doing with all these DC movies. Mm. We don't need to know because like, I think it sounds even more shambolic 
when they keep delaying and recasting and changing directors on all the DC properties. Yeah. The Marvel stuff, it seems to be quite a well-honed machine. They release the information. There have been very few moments when they've gone back and changed what they've said. But with the DC stuff, people are dropping out left, right and centre. And I, and I think, you know, this is probably part of the process of making these movies. Mm. But I think it's not perceived very well. It seems more shambolic than it actually is. Yeah. You know, this probably happens with so many different properties. But every time something happens on these movies, it's getting reported. And it was just weird, like on on Twitter like the other day, it was like Ben Affleck is not directing Batman. Although I knew he was directing it at some point, it wasn't like a major issue for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't stop what I was doing, but it did irk me a little bit that it was being reported as like some some incredibly important thing for the franchise. I don't think it will be necessarily. No. Could could, could we maybe just have a decade off from Batman films? Is that possible? I don't think that there has been one for some time. The problem is now they've they've announced the whole DC movie universe, and yeah. so they have to. They're doing it in reverse. They're doing the the film where all the characters are together first, and then they're going to go through them sequentially to show what they all do on their own. And my goodness, it's going to be a long slog. Yeah, a long, very moody slog. <laughs> With all the people who couldn't get into the Marvel movies. <laughs> So, on the subject of comic books. Yeah. Yeah, it's what we're doing today. Yeah. So, as promised, what we thought we'd talk about would were just sort of, I think, three comic series mm. um, that we've read recently, which we think are rather good. And two of them are from Image. One of them is uh, Injection by uh, Warren Ellis. And the second one uh, is... Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughan. And the last one is an indie comic by Alexis Deacon called Gesh. So, yeah. Why are we talking about these? They're all pretty good. <laughs> it's a good enough reason. We're not going to talk about them if they're rubbish. Um, but we've also come to them, like, when the first two have come out in trades. Now, yeah. And we kind of read them over Christmas. And to be honest, I'd seen these things in various comic shops. Uh, over time and I'd seen the covers of them blah blah but we were following so many different comics that I just thought I don't really want to pick that up and start reading something new Mm. but then they've come out in trade which is nice because you can just read a chunk of the story and the nice thing about them now is both Paper Girls and Injection have been on a hiatus so there's it's actually a good time because you can catch up on the first two trades that cover I think the first ten issues of each of those and then they both return in March very soon and I'm not sure when the second volume of Gesh is out. Mm. But we'll get to that. Yeah. So which one do you want to do first? Uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> All will be revealed in about 15 seconds. About 15 seconds. <laughs> it's crack on. So the first one we're going to talk about is Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughan, who wrote it. Uh, The art is by Cliff Chang, colours Matt Wilson and letters Jared K. Fletcher. Yeah, so Brian K. Vaughan, big name in comics, especially image ones at the moment. Um, Obviously currently doing Saga, which is fantastic. It's an ongoing story. If you're not reading it, you should read it. It's brilliant. 
Um, that's been going for a few years now. He's also done Ex Machina, Pride of Baghdad, many, many, many things which we've read. And Why the Last Man, for example. And this is his new series, which started, I think, about a year ago. Mm. So what's it about? So it begins in the 1980s. So it's got a very retro feel to it at the beginning. Uh, it's about this girl on her paper round. She's, I think, they're about 11, 12 years old. She's cycling around early morning, delivering papers, meets up with three other girls who also have a paper round and who are friends and hang out together. For various reasons, they start cycling around together. Um, she's the new girl. They don't really know her. They all go to different schools, so they're not already friends or anything like that. And then some really crazy stuff starts <laughs> happening. <laughs> uh, some absolutely bonkers stuff starts happening to their town of Stony Stream, this quiet suburban town that they live in. And they are sort of thrown together, this gang of four girls on their bikes, trying to survive the weirdness that befalls their town. Yeah, it is absolutely bonkers. Mm. And I don't think we'll give away any more about the specific plot. I think that would give away a lot of what's going on, even though, suffice to say, at the end of Ten Issues, it's still unclear exactly what is going on. But this thing brings in some wonderful kind of 80s science fiction tropes. It's got aliens, monsters, time travel, alternate dimensions, all of these funny things going on. It's a fantastic comic, I think. Yeah. Um, it's really, like, it's a gripping comic to read. It's wonderful to see. It's beautifully drawn. It's got great characters in it. And at its heart, it has a really compelling mystery going on in mm. it about, you know, kind of strange things happening in a small town. Uh, but clearly with a much bigger impact in the whole world, potentially. Yeah. So I think what draws you in right from the beginning is the characters of these four girls. They're all they're all very different, but you can see why they would all potentially become friends, why they stick together, why they sort of draw strength from each other. The bond between them that starts to develop very quickly is is really fun, and I think it's the strength of those four characters that carries the whole comic with it, really. That you, you want to see what happens to them, you really care about them very quickly. They're all very interesting characters. And it's nice to see, I think, a story about a gang of girls hanging out together because you don't get that very much. Yeah, so I think like, that's the one thing that really jumps out. I mean, it's not, it's the one thing which kind of flies in the face of a lot of the inspirations that it may have. So if you think about all these sort of 80s, 70s, and 80s, Spielberg era um, science fiction movies um, the ones it references as well so you've got this thing like in the Goonies E.T. Monster Squad. Monster Squad The Lost Boys all these kind of genre movies that were coming out they were all either all male or they were a predominantly male group with a couple of token females in them. and I think what's really cool here is it's it just ignores that completely it takes a lot of the tropes of these kind of movies but actually it's got an all-female cast essentially for the whole thing and it just makes it a bit more interesting to have a different spin on 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 looking at the world through these eyes yeah because even in some of the modern stories where people have gone back and tried to recreate that so things like super eight or stranger things really recent one (laughs) they've gone back to that template again um of you know a a, a gang of boys for friends and they hang out together and there's absolutely no need (laughs) (laughs) 
Like it's an un- like it's an unnecessary thing to carry forward, you know, to just have like a predominantly male cast. And I think what's interesting, although although it's just a comic book, it still really hasn't been done in films. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Do Do you think that this is filmable? I think that it intentionally draws on TV and film motifs, but actually. Once you get into the actual content of it, I don't think it is. Um, I think it's one of those comic books which, like Saga as well, they really make use of being in the comic book format. They're not meant to be made into film. So there are things in here like bizarre, huge aliens and monsters and uh, giant creatures just generally uh, doing things alongside the more lower-key sort of human drama that's taking place as well. And I think it works well as a comic book but it's unnecessary to look at it as something that would potentially be made into a TV show or a film or something. Yeah, so when you think of some of the visuals they would have to recreate somehow, not only would some of them be incredibly expensive, I presume, but very easy to look really incongruous if you're trying to make a a, a show that looks realistic but it just has this stuff in it. I think it would be very difficult. And it's kind of rare these days to see people actually make comics that actually work purely in the comic book medium. Mm. They're designed so that almost they cannot be easily turned into something without losing something. And if you think about how extraordinary some of the content is in a major superhero comic, those can make good films. Mm. But almost here, by tying in both sort of standard human drama with crazy events going on it would be it would do i think a great disservice to the story just to try and make it into a film very easily Um, and also knowing some of the stuff that uh, has happened in other stories by brian k vaughan i don't think the elements of it are going to translate into a easy to watch movie or tv show there's there's you know the weirdness will come in to a point where that would have to be changed or toned down sometimes in order to make it into something that a mainstream audience would uh, would want to watch. Yeah. It's interesting because when I got to the end of volume one, I sort of thought to myself, okay, I can I can kind of maybe see where this is going. I've got I've got some idea of where it's going. There's there's some stuff in here that I just don't understand. But by the time I got to the end of volume two, I was even more confused than I was at the end of volume one. I've I've got no clue what's going on with mm. some of this stuff. It's jumping around in these alternate realities and dimensions as characters popping up from different timelines and it's all completely bonkers. It's immensely readable. Mm. I think compared to some of his other stuff, the non-linear nature of the character interactions makes it more intriguing to work out how it's going to play out. But at the same time, I can imagine some people getting worn down by not having a definitive plot that you can follow from the very beginning yeah that's half the point of it yeah and it's kind of fun where there's a lot of the characters who pop up and maybe give information or say something we as the reader i think don't really know who to trust Hmm. who might be telling the truth who might be lying and it puts you as the reader i guess in the same situation as these four girls because they don't really know either, yeah. other than that they are going to trust each other. Yeah. And they feel that they are the only people that they can trust. Yeah. There's general weirdness going on, and yeah. there's nothing they can 
they can immediately glean from what's happening. It's just so bizarre that they have to sort of look into each other rather than try and get like adult help and things. So. Yeah. So so even when you get a character who appears in some respect to give some kind of explanation, you think I don't know if that's actually the real explanation mm. because it doesn't seem to fit with some of the other stuff that we know and it's it's just all very confusing. <laughs> but I do like the fact that in terms of the characters they have, he's managed to create four female leads who are all distinct. Mm. And also there's no issues with any of them being remotely driven by some romantic lead with any of the male characters who appear. Yeah. There's nothing that means that I think the story is ever going to go down that road. It's just got female characters and it kind of brushes over that completely. It doesn't yeah. use them as sort of any kind of generic character in a comic book, which is nice for once. Mm. So definitely recommend it. Yeah, I think it's back. Um, I think issue 11 resumes uh, sometime in March. So it's a bit like Saga as well. It's, you know, it runs for one arc and then it has a break for a little bit and then mm. it comes back. And I suppose the one really interesting parallel with Saga is they're both two of the most interesting kind of science fiction comics yeah. out at the moment. And they do rely... Well, I don't know how, how he chooses them, but he has a very good relationship i think with the artists who he's working with because they're they're wonderfully complementary i mean you can't imagine saga being done with anyone other than fiona staples doing the artwork on that and i think the artwork that cliff chang has done on this is like really it's beautiful stuff it's very it's got that retro feel there's lots of lovely details in the background that place it in time in the 80s and it's very nicely cleanly drawn it looks it looks really nice as well and a lot of the scenes in in people's homes, etc., have a lot of really cool detail in them, which mm. you have, you know, which make you actually want to look at the look at the pictures rather than just sort of quickly skim through the uh, the story, which is good. I, I just realised something really odd, which is that a lot of people picking up this comic will not actually remember the eighties, <laughs> and in that respect, it makes me feel like. When I read or watch something that's set in the 60s, <laughs> where I've got this idea from film and TV and comics and everything about mm. what the 60s was, but I wasn't alive, so I remember it, but I do remember the 80s, <laughs> <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of people picking this up and thinking, oh cool, retro comic, 80s, mm. who uh, were not born, that's quite scary. <laughs> it was so long ago. So long ago. It was so long ago. <laughs> That is true. I think we just take it for granted, don't we? That yeah. uh, we were there. <laughs> we saw it, man. We saw it. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really, really good comic. If you're not reading it, uh, you should. Because the trades are out and it's nice to kind of, you know, read them in, in that kind of batch format rather than pick them up week to week sometimes. Yeah. The second one we're going to talk about is Injection, which is written by Warren Ellis. The art is Declan Shalvey. The colouring is Geordie Belair and lettering by Phonographics, a.k.a. Stephen Finch. Yeah. So you haven't read Injection yet, have you? I haven't read it yet, no. Why not? <laughs> I've got other things to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, yeah, no. Uh, so Injection is 
the new comic from Warren Ellis et al. Warren Ellis known for many, many, many comics. He's very mm-hmm. prolific. You know, things like Transmetropolitan, Desolation Jones, Global Frequency, Planetary, which we'll come to. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like Ministry of Space. Many, many different things. And this is a new kind of science fiction horror crime techno thriller conspiracy like comic basically all the adjectives i can think of i don't don't exactly know what it really is if you're trying to nail it down but it's absolutely fantastic too it's probably one of the best things i've read in a long 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 time just in terms of you know picking it up i didn't have any idea what it was about because the only warren ellis thing that i read recently is trees and I'd seen this again in shops. I hadn't bothered to pick it up because it was just too much to follow. But this is a real blend, the classic Warren Ellis blend of hard science fiction, um, actually hard science really as well, um, and also magic. He likes to kind of put these things together, kind of old English magic and kind of fusing these things. And essentially this is a story about five people. Um, there's a an archaeologist, stroke science professor. Uh, there's a computer hacker, there's this weird logician stroke detective character there's a spy and there's also somebody who's kind of a wizard well he doesn't call himself a wizard he calls himself a cunning man who's like a a practitioner of old english magic Mm. and all these people are brought together at some point in the past by a mixture of organizations there's like the government is involved and there's a couple of other groups as well who are given this interesting task, which is basically they feel that human innovation is starting to plateau. And what is required is to put together these people as a kind of think tank who will find a way to kickstart innovation in the 21st century, to kind of reinvigorate it and to move humanity forward. Essentially, it's kind of gone in spurts and troughs for a while and now it's kind of leveled out and they feel that this is a bad thing and they want to get this thing kickstarted again so they put this group of people together and they are tasked with sorting this out in some way what they do is create some kind of artificial intelligence which is infused with physics and magic etc but it essentially gains sentience and this idea of bringing forth innovation into the 21st century goes completely wonky when this group of people actually have unleashed this thing into the internet which becomes sentient escapes that and becomes this weird ethereal techno conscience which Mm -hmm. exists and starts messing with the laws of physics and reality etc and then this story picks up essentially after this event has taken place with this group of people who have kind of gone their separate ways coming together again because they realize that what they've unleashed is out of control they're the only ones who understand it and they're going to investigate it and try and i presume put it back in the box Hmm. as it were so that's vaguely what it's about i don't want to give too much away about the events but it's just the most bonkers thing i've read in a while and also one of the most fun things Hmm. as well well you've sold me i'm going to read it now (laughs) But I remember early on you said that I should read Planetary first. Yeah, so as a bit of backstory to this, so having described that, if you haven't read it, you should read 
an earlier comic by Warren Ellis and John Cassaday and um, Laura Martin, I think, from the late 90s, maybe. What Ellis and Cassaday did was this new thing called Planetary. It ran for 27 issues over about 10 years. There were lots of stops and starts in, in the production. But it was this wonderful comic about uh, the deconstruction of pop culture and pulp heroes in the 20th century. And it took these three characters who were labelled the archaeologists of the impossible, who went round investigating and collecting artefacts, etc., of well, and interacting with characters who essentially have in inspired all the things that we see as pulp heroes. So they're trying to uncover what they refer to as a secret history of the 20th century, which is all of these events, people, superhero characters in particular, who all show up but in an alternative form. And it's a wonderfully far-reaching comic. It's fantastic to read, it's beautifully drawn, but it's like so crazy how they managed to fit so much into this one comic about a group of people trying to investigate something and realising that there's always some hidden mystery in the world which they have to seek out. And it was known for sort of spoofing a lot of current and actually very old uh, superhero characters. There are uh, characters who resemble John Constantine, Sherlock Holmes. There's, re there's an issue which is kind of got hints to uh, John Woo films. There's Doc Savage. The Fantastic Four show up, but in this set, they're in the form of the superhero, sorry, the supervillains called the Four, who are actually orchestrating a lot of these bizarre events. It travels back into different eras to understand how things fit together. And I think there was some really, you know, having read that, and I think it, it finished about 10 years ago now, to read Injection now, it's like, if you liked it back, if you liked Planetary back then, this is mm. a wonderful comic to pick up because it's that same big picture storytelling um, involving lots of characters investigating some crazy, crazy phenomena and trying to put it all together. Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of like Paper Girls as well in that 10 issues in, it's unclear how this thing is going to end. I do hope they've actually planned out vaguely where it's going and they do have an end in sight, but it's a really cool story, actually. It's one of those things you pick up and you just, you go through it and you have to read it again afterwards. Um, and I think it's got a lot going for it because, again, like in Planetary, you can probably explore different uh, worlds and genres and events. Um, it's just so bonkers what you know what this entity, uh, the injection as it's called, can actually do. It, I mean, in one story, it's to do with um, it. Uh, it's trying to learn from humans, so it's trying to manipulate them in certain ways. And there's just so many strange things happening that he's clearly made a a concept in the injection that can be used to spin a tremendous number of these kind of techno horror stories as well. Mm. So yeah, that's back again in March and I'm kind of intrigued to know uh, what's going to happen with that. I mean, it's just, it's a gripping story and I think if you haven't picked that up, I think it's worth reading. So the third one is Gesh by Alexis Deacon who did the story and the artwork and everything for this book. <laughs> uh, it's from an indie publisher called No Brow Press. And 
volume one is out at the moment. I think there's going to be three volumes yep. in total yep. in the end. This one is called A Matter of Life and Death, which is part one of the story. Yeah. I think it came out in the middle of last year, hmm. I think. I'm not sure when the next one is coming out. but uh... It's spelt G-E-I-S, but it's pronounced Gesh. Yeah, as which as they explained at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Although we spent a lot of time referring to it by random variations of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's got elements of folklore, fairy tale, fantasy. Uh, it, it's set in an sort of unnamed, non-specific, fantastical, oldie-worldie kingdom, I guess, uh, where the, the the queen or matriarch or, or whoever it is who is ruling this kingdom is dying. And in order to decide who the new chief is going to be, who's going to rule over everyone, a contest is announced, the, the rules of which are not particularly explained to those who are going to take part. And it begins when all of these 50 different people from around the kingdom are suddenly summoned to this chamber where the, the current chief is dying. And they're informed that they are the participants in this contest to become the new chief. One of them will become the new chief. Uh, and they will have to sign a contract where they're going to take part. There's lots and lots of different characters in the story, but I guess... If, if you had to pick out a main character, it would be this girl who doesn't really know why she's there. It appears that she didn't necessarily volunteer to be a part of any of this, but she's one of the 50 in this chamber, so she's going to take part. Uh, and it, it all sort of kicks off when the chief dies and the assistant who was with her when she dies is revealed to be uh, rather malevolent, <laughs> as it were. So visually, it's very beautiful. It looks like it's watercolour, hmm. um, which gives it a really distinctive feel and also quite an old feel, I mm. think. Which kind of washed out colours and yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, there are certain images that I that I remember. There's there's one of someone looking out, and they see the city in the distance and the the colours kind of fade away so the city is just sort of sketched mm. and yet where they are is all beautiful watercoloured in and it's, it's very striking it's very original it's got a strange kind of ethereal quality to it yeah um and like you say it, it it's kind of it seems like it should be based on a real uh fairy tale or something like a grim a grim fairy tale or some yeah. kind of folklore which is backing it up as far as i understand it's a completely original story but it has that feel of a tremendous amount of richness to it in its storytelling and the intricacy of it whilst also the simplicity of the plot it does seem like a like a grim fairy tale yeah and in the same way there's that darkness which comes through as well yeah, yeah. so it, it's it takes this very sort of classic idea of some kind of contest in which there can only be one victor and who is going to come out at the end but it does it in a very original way. And one that, like you said, it, it, it feels so familiar in some ways and yet is completely its own its own story. It has a very distinctive style to it um, and a great cast of characters. For, for a book that's not... The first volume isn't hugely long. It's about 80 pages, yeah. maybe. But in that short space of time, you get... A tremendous number of characters who are very well defined 
and who feel that you know very well, even if they're not in that many panels of the comic. Mm. There's like a lot. There's a lot going on for such a such a small space. It's a very economical use of words, pictures, characters to get a huge amount out of it. Mm. And when you reach the end of the first volume, you desperate to know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And I think there's a. It does remind me a little bit of both in terms of some of the artwork, but also the way that the story is being told. There's elements that kind of remind me a bit of Bill Williams' Fables. Mm. But this does also seem wholly original as well. I mean, it's a different direction completely. In the same way that I think, going back to um, Injection, like there's some weird parallels between that and the Alan Moore, Jason Burroughs thing, um, Neonomicon and The Courtyard and Providence and, and that series. It's like one of the things which thematically you can group with other comics. And I think Gesh really, it's a mixture between a grim fairy tale and the rich storytelling that you get in things like fables as well. And it does see it. I don't know why it does seem like it's, it's a, uh, it's an interpretation of some story that we've just never heard of before. <laughs> I don't know why it comes across like that, but it feels strangely familiar. Mm. And that actually helps, I think. It makes it makes you feel like there's a tremendous sense of history on the page. Not just and that, that's reflected obviously in how it looks as well. Like you say, it looks very ancient, like this is a mythical story being told. It's a bit like Jim Henson films, like uh, The Dark Crystal. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, whether you, you you feel like it is a, another world and yet at the same time just a past era, yeah. something that is lost but that the that the story remains. That there are there are parts of the story where uh, when a character goes to this vast library, and you can almost feel like this book itself, with its slightly kind of faded watercolor nature, could be a part of a vast library about magic. It could mm. be part of a history of something. Uh, it's it's very very clever but i think it's like there's a lot of great stuff coming out from indie publishers at the moment and i think this is a fantastic story um i'm hoping that they're not going to be spaced out too far you know because i kind of want to know what happens next but i'm really keen to to find out actually and it's one of those things again like where you read it and you think i want to know what else um has come from alexis deacon i know he's written a few other books as well um which I didn't know about, but that's the thing. You pick up a, a comic like this and it makes you want to read everything else they've done, mm. um, which is good as well. But I think, yeah, this is a um, it's a fantastic um, comic, one of three. I think the next one is uh, going to be called A Game Without Rules. That's what I read somewhere. I don't know if that's true or not. I could be making that up. And hopefully it's not out yeah, too far in the future. But that's our sort of final recommendation. Yeah. So... Pick any or all of them. They're all really good. <laughs> or none of them. But if you do that, it's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's kind of some of the things that we've been uh, recently reading that we think are very good. And we'll kind of, I think we'll keep coming back to particular comics that we think are ones that we like a lot. More unusual titles as well, once in a while. So that's it for episode nine. 
if you want to get in touch with us uh give us any comic recommendations or drop us a line uh, if you're enjoying the podcast then you can primarily find us on twitter at tfcaa we've also got a facebook page up and running time for cakes and ale and of course you can find us on the website timeforcakesandale.com which we're going to be keeping up to date with some of the new stuff that we're doing yeah so please do get in touch if you want to and we'll let you know what's going on yeah. and speaking of what's going on that was episode nine but next time we've made it to 10 episodes yes double digits we haven't actually done that yet we will <laughs> maybe it'll all end don't know no so next time episode 10 what are we doing i've been really looking forward to this one so next time we're going to be talking about a tv show that we both really love from the late 90s it's not very well known uh, it's become a very obscure kind of cult classic i guess it's not that widely watched or remembered which we think is a terrible shame because it was a wonderful show only got a couple of seasons i don't know if anyone's going to get it from these hints but we will reveal not the from ep- that <laughs> not even i don't know what you're talking about based on that uh we will reveal what the show is when we do the episode yeah, and it'd be interesting to know if anyone can guess based on those very, very obscure <laughs> uh, clues. And actually, to be honest, even when we do actually put the episode out, when we've done it, it'll be interesting to know if even then anyone has any clue what we're talking about. As well. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's one of those shows which it should have gotten a lot more love than it actually did. And conveniently, for those who want to follow what we're doing, it's not even available on DVD. So uh, there are other means to obtain it, uh, which we do not advocate, obviously. Mm, obviously um, But uh, yeah, it's a fantastic show. Didn't last very long. Deserved to go on forever. It was yeah. wonderful. Um, and we've just finished a rewatch of that in preparation for uh, doing an episode on, on that next. Mm. So yeah, I think... Uh, that was a that was a very vague hand wavy description of what's happening next. <laughs> I suppose if you weren't planning on listening to next time's episode, uh, that's probably not going to help. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's worth it. It's uh, it's about a show that hopefully you might want to seek out afterwards. Yes. Yeah. So that's it for episode nine. Next time. Episode ten. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>